Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible home as our gift to you. Genesis 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9 this morning. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. When I, uh, when I was telling, when I, when I told people that I was going to be preaching through Genesis 1 through 11 this summer, uh, early on in the summer, Bruce, my father-in-law, started making fun of me. And he said, what are you going to do when you get to chapter 6 and, start to, and have to talk about the Nephilim? And I, I thought, well, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. I got to it. Here we are. This is a strange passage. We have, we have a few strange elements in this passage. And for, first you have the question of who are the sons of God and the, and the daughters of man? What does that mean? Who, who are the Nephilim? What does it mean that God has regret and that God feels sorry? And then finally, what does it mean that Noah is righteous and blameless? These are, these are strange questions. These are, these are difficult questions. It's a strange passage. And so what do you do with verses like this? Do you, do you just ignore it and turn the page and write it off as an old text that's too hard to understand? Sons of God, Nephilim, I, I don't know what this means. Let's just go to chapter 7, right? The Bible is a strange book. We, we, can, we can acknowledge that. We can say that. It's, it's strange because it's ancient, thousands of years old, and so it's not always easily understood. But it's not silly. It's, it's not irrelevant. Not, it's not not worth knowing. And it's not unknowable. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean that it's impossible. The Bible is, from Genesis 1 through Revelation, the Bible is coherent. It makes sense. It is, it is reasonable and rational. And it holds contemporary meaning for all of us. Genesis 6 matters for us today. It, careful, thoughtful work is needed when you study the Bible, 
and, and the work of scholars who think deeply about strange questions like the sons of God and the Nephilim, that's valuable, and, and we praise God for those who do that work. But for this, for this morning, one of my burdens pastorally is that you as a congregation wouldn't shy away from the Old Testament, wouldn't consider it just inaccessible. I don't, I don't even know what to do with this, so I'll just stick to the New Testament. The, the Old Testament is the word of God. And it is written for our benefit. I want you to be able to open it and study it and grow in your confidence in it. There, is, there, are, there are so many spiritual nutrients in the Old Testament, and I want you to feel like you have access to those nutrients. And so that's, that's why we're walking through Genesis 1 through 11. That's why we preach the Old Testament and not just the New Testament, because the Old Testament was written for our benefit. Strange passages like Genesis 6 were written for our benefit. And so we're going to walk through the passage and try to explain it, try to help you understand it, and see why it's included in the Bible and why it matters for us today. And as we're, as we're tracing through the passage... There's three hooks that you can see in the passage that help guide us. In, in verse 2, we see what the sons of God saw. The sons of God saw something. Verse 5, the Lord saw something. And then finally, verse 8, the Lord, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So three times where someone sees something. That's how we're going to organize this passage. That first section is verses 1 through 4. And in verses 1 through 4, the sons of God see the daughters of man. So verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So that, that question of who are the sons of God and the daughters of man, that's a, that's a big open question in in Christian scholarship. Um, there, there are three main historical interpretations, and all three of these interpretations are, ortho, are, are coming from orthodox, Bible-affirming believers. So this is a, this is a friendly debate of, of how we interpret this passage. The first uh, interpretation is that the sons of God are kings or rulers who are abusing their power. The second interpretation is that these sons of God are fallen angels. And I don't have, un, I don't have time to unpack those two views, and I, I don't take those two views. But I can point you to resources if you're interested in further study on your own. So th those are two of the historical interpretations. And the third view, which I do hold, and I'm going to argue for this morning, is that the sons of God are the line of Seth, and that the daughters of man are the line of Cain. So sons of God refers to the line of Seth. Daughters of man refers to the line of Cain. And I, I take this view because of how it fits both the immediate context of this section of Genesis and the context of Moses' writings in Genesis through Deuteronomy. So last week, we, we unpacked the second half of chapter 4 and then all of chapter 5. And in, in that section, Moses spent a lot of time distinguishing two lines, the line of Cain and his descendants, and then the line of Seth and his 
descendants. And so it makes sense that he would show that the slide into wickedness among humanity is completed when those two lines that had been separate merge and the sons of God, or the line of Seth, they actually are now the ones acting wickedly. So back in chapter 4 and 5, it's here's the line of Cain that wants to go away from God, and here's the line of Seth that's calling on the name of the Lord. And now in chapter 6, Noah's saying what happened is those two lines came back together, and the, and the line that was supposed to be calling on the name of the Lord is now acting wickedly like the line of Cain. That they've, they've begun to do what they ought not to do. And we see that, similar, that same language here has, has come up earlier. So verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. That sounds like what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve, specifically Eve in, the, in that context, Eve sees that the fruit is good. See, it's, it's, a, it's pleasing to the eye, desired to make one wise, and so she took it and ate. Right? This, this is the language of giving in to temptation, giving in to your fleshly desires, rejecting God's plan and, and embracing your own plan for your life. So just like Eve took the fruit because it was desirable, these sons of God, this line of Cain, is pursuing marriage with the line of, excuse me, the, the line of Seth, these godly men are pursuing marriage with the line of Cain. They're, they're, they're coming back into Cain's sin of going away from the presence of the Lord. We want to intermarry with this line. We want to pursue the, the world building, the civilization building apart from God that Cain and his line have been pursuing. So we're going to do whatever we want just like Eve did, even Adam did whatever they want, just like Cain did whatever he want. We are also going to do whatever it is we want. We're going to take whoever we choose without regard to God's plan and God's, uh, God's word. And additionally, not, not only do we see that context, in, in chapter 5, Moses makes much of God creating man creating Adam in his likeness. So there's these royal sonship overtones. So chapter 5, it says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then Adam, in verse 3, Adam fathers a son in his own likeness after his image and names him Seth. So there's, there's this pattern where Moses is saying that God refers to Adam as his, in his likeness, and Adam refers to Seth as a son in his likeness. And so now you have the, the line of Seth is the sons of God, after the likeness of their father. And then later in, in Exodus 4, when Moses is telling Pharaoh to let God's people go, God speaks through Moses and says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So there's this pattern in Scripture. There's, there's this uh, theme in Scripture 
of referring to the line of the promise, God's chosen people, with sonship language. Right? So, so here's this line of Seth that's supposed to be distinct. They're supposed to call on the name of the Lord, but instead they're running into sin. They're running into rebellion, just like the line of Cain had run into rebellion. And these, these sons of God are acting like Adam and Eve in the garden. They're driven by their appetites. They take whatever they choose, whatever looks attractive. So the sons of God see something and run after it. They see wickedness and they say, I want that. I love wickedness. And the second thing is in verse 5, the Lord sees something. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So what is God's assessment of the situation? Verse 5, the Lord sees the wickedness of men. Just as God knew and exposed Adam and Eve's sin in the garden and Cain's hard heart and wickedness when he murdered Abel, now here in chapter 6, he knows about and exposes the sin of humanity. God sees the wickedness. And notice that God not only exposes their sinful acts, but really primarily, he's exposing their sinful minds and hearts. Verse, verse 5, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God doesn't only look at the outward appearance. God also looks in at the heart and the mind. God lays us bare. He sees us. Nothing is hidden from God. Adam and Eve's sin wasn't hidden. Cain's murder of Abel wasn't hidden. The sin in, chapter, in Genesis 6 wasn't hidden, and your sin isn't hidden, and my sin isn't hidden. God sees when we sin, but he also knows what is happening in our hearts that causes us to sin. Sin isn't just what we do. It's who we are. A month or so before Kevin, Kevin and Leanna Dow left, and Kevin would love to hear me say, when I think of sin, I think of Kevin. <laughs> but a month or so before Kevin and Leanna moved, I was talking with Kevin about counseling. Kevin's a, a counselor. He's now in Toronto uh, as a counseling pastor at a church there. So I, I was talking with Kevin about counseling, and he made a comment that has stuck with me. He said, we do what we do because we want what we want. We do what we do because we want what we want. We don't sin just for the sake of sinning. Very few people wake up in the morning and think, I wonder how much I can sin today. I wonder what I can do that is sinful today. We sin or, or we reject God's rules and God's ways. We sin because we want something other than what God calls us to. We sin because we want something. I sin because in my rebellious heart, I don't want to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And I don't want to love my neighbor as myself. I want to love me. I want to glorify me. I want to obey me. I want to serve me. I want to pursue comfort for me. That's why I sin. Because I want it. We do what we do because we want what we want. Then and now, God sees this. He knows our hearts and our actions. And and look at verse 6 and 7. Look at how God reacts. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Look at how God reacts. He gives, our sin gives him regret, grieves him to his heart, and makes him sorry. So here's this strange thing in the passage. God has regret? What? How, how can it be that God has regret? If God is wise and all-powerful and perfect, what does, what does it mean that he has regret? In, in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul, the first king in Israel, when Saul sins as Israel's king repeatedly and repeatedly rejects God's commandments, God says that he regrets that he made Saul king. So it's not the only time in Scripture that we hear about God's regret. So in 1 Samuel 15, God says that he regrets making Saul king. But then just a few verses later, Samuel, the prophet, he says of God that God is not like a man, that he should lie or have regret. So we have regret and God has regret, but God is not like us when he has regret. And this hints at the complexity within God. God is a complex creature, which shouldn't surprise us because we are complex. And if we are complex, how much more God? God is wise, unchanging, all-knowing, all-powerful, and good. Everything that God does is good. He does not make mistakes. When he created humanity, he knew that we would sin and rebel. It was not a surprise to him. God declares the end from the beginning, Scripture says. So God knew that we would sin and rebel. And creating humans who would rebel and then subsequently bringing both judgment and redemption, and then ultimately restoring his creation. That's the story of redemptive history, right? We sin, God brings judgment and salvation, and finally restoration. So when God did that, that plan of redemption, that big scope of redemptive history, is all intentionally aimed at the full display of his glory and the deepest joy of his people. God's plan in history is to 
display his glory, show how good he is, show how big he is, show how wise he is, show how powerful he is, and bring deep, lasting joy to his people. And the way that he does that is through this creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's, that's his plan. He's, he's doing that purposefully and intentionally. And yet within that overarching plan, we see here in Genesis 6 and in 1 Samuel 15 that God is not unfeeling, but he's deeply moved and even grieved by the wickedness of man. So his plan can be going perfectly, Everything can be happening as he designs, and yet within that, he is still grieved by the sin of man. It still brings sorrow to his heart. If you look at verses 5 through 7, God sees man's sin. He feels regret and grief and sorrow, and it's not because he has done something wrong, but because we have done something wrong. So there's a distinction between our negative emotions and God's negative emotions. When we feel regret, it's the result of our actions. I was angry. I lied. I gave in to lust. I gossiped, et cetera, et cetera, right? I did this wrong thing, and now I feel regret. When God feels regret, It's the result of our actions, not his. So there's a distinction that has to be made there. And I think that's the main point here for Moses. By including this detail that God is feeling regret and grief and sorrow, Moses is telling us God is not aloof. He's not disinterested. He's not disengaged from his creation in general or from us specifically. He's the wise, powerful creator, and we have damaged his creation and made a mockery of his word, and he is not unaffected by this. He grieves, and he will not stand idly by. Verse verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. I am grieved by this sin, and I will respond to this sin by blotting out man. God made us, and God can wipe us out. And for the sake of his glory, and to uphold his justice, he will act. God will not stand passively and allow sin to continue. He will step into the situation. God warned Adam and Eve that when they ate the fruit that was forbidden, they would die. And now that all of humanity has given themselves over to rebellion, God's going to carry out that promised consequence. Before we move on, God's judgment of sin, it's, it's both a warning and a comfort to us. It's, of course, a warning. We ourselves are sinners. I read Genesis 6, and I think, that's me. I have sinned in these ways. That sin is not hidden from God. 
And if we do not turn away from that sin and flee to Jesus as our refuge, we will be ruined. So it's a warning. This, Genesis 6 is a warning to you. God sees your sin, he's going to act, and you better run to Jesus. But it's also a comfort. We are small. The wickedness in the world is massive. I am often sinned against. Those I love are often sinned against. And history and current events are full of big, powerful individuals, groups, and nations whose wickedness just wreaks havoc. And what hope do we have and what could we possibly do about it? When we look at the wickedness of the world, what, what do we do? And here's where Moses mentions the Nephilim, this strange word, and that's in verse 4. And the Nephilim were probably, the, the Nephilim were probably giants or mighty warriors of some sort. At the very least, we can say in verse 4 that these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So in Genesis 6, you have these Nephilim, these, these giants, these men of renown. But then also in Moses' day, the Nephilim were a problem. So when, when the spies go into Canaan to spy out the land, they come back and they say the land is filled with Nephilim. The, the land is filled with these large men, these men that are so big that the spies say, we felt like grasshoppers next to them. So for Moses' original readers, they, they say the Nephilim were there then too. And Moses' message for Noah's time, for his own time, and for our time is that God says, vengeance is mine and I will repay that's God's response to wickedness. The Nephilim in those days were mighty, but in God's eyes, they were men like any other. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So they were men in Noah's time, and they are men in his time. The Nephilim in those days were mighty, but before God, they were men, and they would be swept away in the flood of God's judgment. And the wicked in our day are mighty and far beyond our power to deal with, but God will see to them. God will take care of the wickedness in the world. We don't have to. And he'll either take care of it by bringing those people to repentance like he has for us, or he'll take care of it through final judgment. And so we can rest. He will see to it. We don't have to. So the judgment of God is a warning for us and also a comfort for us. God sees sin, it grieves him, and he will move to judge it. But that is not all that God sees, and that is not all that God will do. Verse 8 and 9. God sees the sin of humanity but he also sees Noah. Here's the sin of humanity. I'm going to blot out humanity, but Noah 
found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Something is different about Noah. In, ver in verse 9, Moses is going to go so far as to say that Mo Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And so again, here's a strange passage. What does that mean? How can Noah be righteous? Righteousness and blamelessness, those are terms that are reserved for those who are without sin, and that hasn't been true of anyone since Adam and Eve. And, and in fact, we'll see Noah's sin after the flood. Noah himself will fall into sin. He's going to become drunk and then angrily curse one of his sons. So, so what does it mean that Noah is righteous and blameless in his generation? Moses is telling us that though Noah is a sinner, he is distinct from the rest of his generation. His generation is characterized by their sin. They do what is right in their own eyes. They, their hearts are wicked and they pursue evil continually. But Noah walks with God. Noah pursues righteousness. Noah calls on the name of the Lord and does what is right in God's eyes. In other words, Noah lives by faith. Not in himself, but in God. Noah believes that God is wise, that God's ways are best, that God's word is right and worth obedience, even if he's the only one who believes it. And because of this, Noah finds favor in God's eyes. So, so God is going to judge the wickedness of humanity. And we're going to see that in the next few weeks as we uh, focus on the flood and the after effects. God's going to judge the wickedness of humanity, but he's going to preserve Noah and his family. And in so doing, he's going to preserve the line of promise, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Right? Noah comes from Seth's line. Seth comes from Adam and Eve. God promised in Genesis 3 that he would bring a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And so even when he's about to wipe out humanity, he's preserving a seed. He's preserving that family line so that he can bring redemption, bring restoration. And that's where the real good news is for us today. Through the line of Noah, eventually Jesus will be born. So in, in, in this day, in Genesis 6, there's one man who's righteous, and it's Noah. And God's going to preserve humanity through the line of Noah. And eventually that's going to be Jesus. And, and to, to wrap up, let's real briefly compare Jesus' story to Noah's story. Noah alone is righteous and blameless in his generation, and he walks with God. And because of this, God spares Noah and his family alone in the ark when he sends the flood of his judgment to sweep away the rest of humanity. That's Noah's story. 
Jesus, Jesus is, Jesus alone is righteous and blameless in his generation. And he walks with God and finds favor with God. At, at his baptism, God says of Jesus, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. And it's because Jesus was righteous, because Jesus was blameless. And in fact, Jesus is the only human in history who is fully and completely righteous and blameless. Noah is going to sin when he gets off the ark. Jesus never sins. Jesus never disobeys. Jesus never does what is right in his own eyes. Jesus never gives in to his craven appetite. Jesus says, my food is to do my Father's will. So Jesus alone is truly, fully righteous and blameless. And what happens to him is exactly the opposite of what happens to Noah. Whereas Noah the righteous is spared and the wicked are judged, Jesus the righteous will take the full weight of judgment so that the wicked can be spared. At the cross, Jesus is overwhelmed by the flood of God's wrath, swept away. And that wrath is poured out in consequence for our sin, our wickedness. And because Jesus endured that flood, those who repent of their sin and take refuge in Jesus as their Savior, what happens to them? They are declared righteous and blameless, and they find favor in the eyes of God. So Noah is righteous, and because of his righteousness, God spares him from judgment and, and pours out his judgment on the wicked. We're the wicked. We're the sinners. And because of Christ's righteousness, Christ. The, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ and now God looks at us, God sees us and we find favor in his eyes because he sees his son. Because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so the hope for us is that one man stood against sin. One man said, I'm not going to go that way. And then that man laid down his life so that we could die. And so now we stand in the righteousness of Christ. We're preserved from the flood of God's judgment. And now as we follow Christ, we say, I don't care where anyone else goes. I don't care what anyone else does. I'm following Jesus. I'm going to walk with Jesus. I'm going to find my hope in Jesus. I'm not going to go after the things of this world. I'm going to go after the things of Christ. Let's pray. What wondrous love is this 
that Christ would be righteous and blameless and walk with you, Father, and then he would lay down his life, that he would take the flood of your judgment reserved for us so that we could be righteous and blameless through Christ. So, Father, we confess that all other ground is sinking sand, that there is no life for us outside of Jesus. And so we want to stand on the solid rock that is Christ. In him we pray. Amen.